0: Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Ragavan, and this is When It Mattered. When It Mattered is a podcast on how leaders deal with and learn from adversity. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. My guest today is the New York Times best-selling author Sam Keen. His latest book is called The Bastard Brigade, the true story of the renegade scientists and spies who sabotaged the Nazi atomic bomb.
1: The idea that you were going to send in a very famous Major League Baseball player to try to assassinate a Nobel Prize winner that in a neutral country, too, so... Uh, I mean, Moberg was, was, I mean, that would be like sending, you know, like LeBron James in or something to like kill someone, a scientist in another country. Like it's just a incredibly baddie idea, but they decided they were going to do this.
0: Keane also is the author of other science bestsellers, The Disappearing Spoon, The Violinist's Thumb, The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, and Caesar's Last Breath. His stories have appeared in The Best American Nature and Science Writing, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Slate, and his work has been featured on NPR's Radio Lab, Science Friday, and Fresh Air. Sam, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Did you always know that this was what you wanted to do in life to become a writer and particularly a science writer?
1: No, actually, I for a long time thought I was going to be a scientist. Uh, when I was going through high school, I was taking all the science classes I could and every subject, and then got to college in Minnesota and was very focused again on science. I was a physics major. And it really wasn't until about my third or so year in college when uh, things swerved on me a little bit. And I just realized that temperamentally, maybe I wasn't cut out to be a scientist in that I started working in some different labs that were doing research. And I realized that I just wasn't enjoying doing the research as much as I thought I was. Uh, I didn't like the fact that, you know, you spent all your time building and tinkering with equipment. And, you know, I was a little clumsy with it, couldn't get it to work right all the time. And for really the first time in my life, I started to wonder, you know, well, maybe i don't actually want to be a scientist anymore. And it was a little scary in that I had been focused on being a scientist for so long that I really almost didn't know who I was anymore if I wasn't going to be a scientist. So basically what I did was I kind of ran to the other end of campus and got an English major. So I was working on both the the science and the English part there. And eventually realized that uh, not only did I like writing, but that you could make a living by writing about science. And that was a good fit for me because I got to be sort of involved with science, kind of keep up with science, but I didn't have to be in the lab doing the science either. So it ended up being a good fit for me in the end.
0: And what was kind of the greatest moment of struggle or adversity in sort of moving towards this career, would you say?
1: Well, when I it was about two thousand seven ish or so, and I was working at some publications, and it was going fine, but I realized that the kind of writing I wanted to do was more amenable, I think, to a book. Uh, just getting to go a little bit into the history, having a bit a little bit more leeway to be creative and fun with the language, things like that. I think it worked better in a book. So I decided I wanted to write a book and ended up writing my first book, which was about the periodic table. So I guess the quick premise was to find like a weird or funny or spooky story about every element on there. And I didn't write the book in a very smart way in that I was going to have 118 sort of individual chapters, one about every element, which would have been a very sort of choppy. Uh, Not a very pleasant reading experience, I think. And when I was trying to get that book published in that format, it was a struggle in that I just kept getting rejected over and over. I think it was partly the format, but also partly because I think a lot of agents, when they got the initial letter that I sent, were probably thinking, oh, yuck, the periodic table, I hated that thing, and you know, just kind of hit delete, and I never heard back from most of them. So that was a real struggle, not only having to kind of rewrite the book in different terms as a different, in a different format, but also to just kind of be rejected like that over and over. Uh, Eventually it did work out, got a great agent. We've been working together since then, but that did take a while at the beginning.
0: And your previous four books were about chemistry, genetics, and neuroscience, and the atmosphere. But if I understand it right, you were a physics major in college, right? But you ignored physics until this latest book, The Bastard Brigade. Why was that? And then what convinced you to write this book?
1: Well, I I did get that question often. You know, you were a physics major. Why not write about physics? And the short answer was I just never found a story that I felt like was compelling enough where I really wanted to tackle it in a whole book. I mean, a book's a big investment, few years of your life, spending a lot of time and emotion in it. And I just hadn't found a compelling enough story yet until I started what became The Bastard Brigade. And I just, I think I really just fell in love with the characters in the book. There were just so many interesting and unusual people and the stakes of the book, you know, the, the prospect of the uh, Nazis, of all people, getting an atomic bomb, the stakes were just so high and the characters were so interesting that I just felt it was a really compelling story and one that I would want to commit to.
0: And why was it called the Bastard Brigade? And, and talk a little bit about the, the, some of these amazing central characters that you found uh, to, po- to create in the book.
1: Yeah, so the Bastard Brigade, the title itself, comes from one of the groups that uh, was kind of trying to stop the Nazi atomic bomb. Uh, And that group consisted of uh, several scientists and a few military people who were kind of running around in Europe trying to spy on uh, and sabotage what the Nazis were doing. And this group that was going around, they were very secretive and they weren't part of the normal chain of command within the military. So they didn't report directly to anyone except people in Washington. So they didn't have a parent group. And in that way, they were sort of a a bastard group, uh, sort of metaphorically. Uh, But uh, they also were sort of hard charging, a little reckless. They kept getting threatened with court martials and stuff like that. So they sort of, I think, embraced this idea that they were bastards anyway and kind of were salty and kind of found that sort of fun. So the book has kind of a double meaning, but it does refer to one of these groups. They were called the All-Sauce Mission. And they were, again, one of the groups trying to uh, figure out what the Nazis were doing in terms of building an atomic bomb. And some of the other characters, uh, there was Joseph Kennedy, who was JFK's older brother, He actually died during the war, which I think a lot of people know, but they don't realize that he died sort of on one of these peripheral missions where they were trying to knock out what they thought were Nazi atomic bunkers in northern France. So that was kind of unusual. I hadn't known he died on a mission related to that. And I think the original character that really got me excited uh, was the guy Mo Berg, and he was a genius, knew something like a half a dozen languages. Some people said a dozen different languages. He went to Princeton and Columbia, and he studied at the Sorbonne in Paris. And he did all this, uh, fitting all that around being a Major League Baseball player. So I just love this idea of kind of this big lumbering catcher who was from New Jersey, who was also a genius, spoke all these languages. And eventually during the war, they trained him to be an assassin. And they actually sent him in to a lecture that was being given by Werner Heisenberg, the famous German physicist. He was working on the Nazi atomic bomb project, the atomic research there. And they actually sent Mo Berg in to potentially assassinate Werner Heisenberg. And I'd never heard that story before. And I just thought it was crazy that they would send a major league baseball player in to do something like that. And as soon as I heard that story, I thought, I have to write about this in some capacity
0: and and i loved i loved the portrait of uh, of uh, Moberg too you know especially how he used to he had a lot of characteristics that actually helped him in his spying among other things he was this incredibly avid reader and he would have these dozens of newspapers he would read and and you described how he would have these live newspapers versus dead newspapers and nobody could ever touch the live newspapers till he was done with them i thought that was fascinating
1: yeah, he would he would get uh, you know a dozen newspapers ish a day in several different languages, and when he was in the middle of them, he again, as you said, he called them his live newspapers, and he would drape them around you know his bed and the bathroom and on, on furniture, and they'd be on the road in a hotel room, and his roommate would come in and you know want to sit down in his room, and Moberg would get furious because he had touched one of his live newspapers. So the guy was incredibly uh, eccentric, a very strange fellow, but. Also very smart, and he was probably one of the most famous major league baseball players of his day, Uh, hanging out with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, went on an all-star tour of Japan at one point. So a real kind of uh, American original, I think, Moberg.
0: And, And it seemed like because he wasn't as good at baseball as he was at schmoozing and, you know, uh, his interest in travel and reading. And so he was being sent on all these goodwill missions, including to Japan and then to, uh, to Germany. And on, on those trips, you know, he was able to, I guess his first spying, self-given self, uh, uh, spying mission was in Japan when he vis- visited there. And then in Berlin, he was one of those early people to sound the alarm about uh, Hitler and Nazism.
1: Yeah, Moberg was actually a, a pretty mediocre baseball player. He was he was not that good. He was uh, pretty slow, not a great hitter. He was a backup catcher, bullpen catcher for most of his career. So not exactly, you know, setting the baseball world on fire. But people loved having him around. Reporters worshipped him. They loved chatting with Moberg for hours and hours. So he kind of stuck around the league for a long time because of his celebrity. And then, as you said, he would they would send him on goodwill tours. He actually took some footage with a movie camera when he was in Japan at one point, ended up giving that to the U.S. military. And that was the only video footage we have, or excuse me, the only film footage we had of Tokyo before the war started. So it was incredibly valuable footage. He happened to be in Berlin on the day after Hitler got elected chancellor of Germany. So he was there. He witnessed that. He started coming back, telling people that Europe was headed for war, stuff like that. So he was a very astute and good observer of uh, politics and things like that. Yeah.
0: Uh, You say in the book that, you know, a lot of these – Heroes were in some ways, and and heroines were in some ways flawed because they had some of them had dark motivations. You know, they had their strengths and their weaknesses. Can you touch a little bit upon some of that in these key characters?
1: Yeah, with Mo Berg, he was always a bit of a loner, very secretive, very furtive about what he was doing, and no one could ever quite. Figure out what was going on inside Moberg's head. Very strange, sort of secretive fellow. The one that really comes to mind here with the dark motivations was Jack to Joseph Kennedy, uh, JFK's older brother. And uh, about the midway through the war, I believe it was 1943. JFK ended up becoming a big war hero, uh, the famous incident with the PT boat that he was on, uh, where he ended up you know, basically dragging several people, uh, saving their lives in the water, saving all his men after their boat got destroyed. And he became sort of a national hero. There were magazine stories written about him, things like that. And Joe, his older brother, was kind of furious that his kid brother was getting all of this attention. And Joe kept volunteering for these very dangerous missions after that in large part because he wanted to one up his brother. I mean, he was in the war, he was a patriot. It was a very brave thing of him to do, but his big motivation was wanting to top his younger brother. And that's what he ended up volunteering for this dangerous mission where he ended up getting killed uh, because he was trying to beat out his brother. So you do see kind of these dark motivations of people wanting to prove themselves or they had other agendas for going over there and uh, fighting against the Nazis, things like that, yeah.
0: And there's this very vivid scene in your book where uh, Jack is being feted for his bravery and Joe is actually in a room crying, which, which seemed amazing.
1: Yeah, there was a party where they were celebrating uh, Joseph Sr., the father's birthday, and they were making toast to him, you know, saying, "Here, here's to our good friend uh, Joseph Kennedy, the ambassador, stuff like that. And at some point, someone said, you know, here's to the father of our hero, uh, to Jack. And Joe got furious, stomped out of the room, and actually a family friend found him later bawling behind a closed door in his room because he was just so jealous and so mad. So yeah, that was a very vivid moment and really kind of crystallized that this was a big motivation for him.
0: Your book also really uh, speaks at length about the efforts of some very courageous and tough female scientists. Can you talk a little bit about some of those characters?
1: Yeah, one of the big characters in the book, especially toward the beginning, doing the science here is Irene Joliot-Curie, who was the daughter of Marie Curie. And I knew about Irene a little bit. Uh, She was a Nobel Prize winner in her own right, and I wrote about her a little bit before. But I didn't realize what a role she had played in uh, atomic fission research at the very beginning. And not only the great science that she did, but she was very active during the war in the underground resistance movement, along with her husband, Frederick joliot Curie. And again, I'd never really heard these stories before about uh, not only the great science she did, but about how Irene kind of had a lot to live up to with her mother. Uh, Marie Curie was a very great scientist, but she was not an easy woman to uh, be the daughter of, frankly. Uh, she had very high standards, very demanding of her. And Irene really led an incredible life uh, in both, both World Wars, actually. And it was fun to kind of go into her story and kind of bring her alive a little bit. So she's one of the big characters in the book, yeah.
0: And you indicated that World War II was perhaps the first time that scientists were given guns and helmets and dispatched into combat zones to kind of wage this parallel shadow war, which you describe as a, as a war of ideas and I guess scientific morality, Right.
1: Yeah, so you also often hear that World War One is described as the chemists' war for some of the things they did, especially the kind of notorious gas warfare that was going on. But in this case, in this book, they were actually sending uh, scientists along and they were the ones kind of on the front lines, which was kind of new that they had a group that was just dedicated – To rooting out essentially scientific secrets and trying to find what the Nazis were up to, especially with atomic weapons, but also in a lot of other fields as well. They were really interested in Nazi technology and things like that. So this idea of going after scientific secrets was kind of a new one. And the they were they were attached to the Manhattan Project. So I think those people like Leslie Groves and some of his subordinates who came up with these ideas really deserve a lot of credit for this kind of new innovative unit that they put together to go after the Nazi atomic bomb and other stuff.
0: And what was interesting was kind of this darkening of their characters over time because they no longer were just scientists. If you look at Irene's husband Frederick, you know, you say that at one point he was trying to determine uh you know who would live and who would die amongst people that were found to be working on both sides, for instance, and and that's kind of a role that scientists never really had before, right?
1: Yeah, it, it, it really isn't. Uh, so Frederick, earlier in the book, he was came off as kind of this flighty, kind of happy-go-lucky guy. There's a moment when they make their big discovery, their Nobel Prize winning discovery, and he goes jumping around the lab and he's throwing his arms in the air and whooping and screaming. It's just kind of a carefree, nice moment for him that was before the war and then he joined the resistance paris uh the underground and by the end of the war as you said he was the one who was kind of in charge of figuring out when they found a collaborator someone who was uh, betraying the resistance and working with the nazis secretly he was kind of the one who was deciding whether they should execute those people or not so very hard-boiled tough decision he was making and then during the actual liberation of paris when it was essentially the people of paris trying to kick the nazis out Uh, Joliot ended up making uh, scores and scores of Molotov cocktails, and he used his science skills to make better Molotov cocktails, handed them out to people, and by some accounts was even throwing the Molotov cocktails at tanks and things himself. So he really did turn into, uh, the times kind of made him turn into someone who was not just kind of behind the scenes, but really on the front lines, uh, trying to expel the Nazis from Paris.
0: What was striking to me was how these scientists, you know, many of them brilliant scientists, were played such a major role before and during World War II to notify the Allies both of the rising threat of Hitler and Nazism because they were seeing these things during their travels and in their conversations with German scientists and sort of their counterparts in Germany. And and secondly, you know, their conviction and foreboding that the Germans were not only developing atomic weapons, but that they were like years ahead of of the Allies and that the Allies really need to, 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 to start working on this.
1: Yeah, those scientists do deserve a lot of credit. Uh, there were some scientists uh, who were very focused just on the technical side of things. So, you know, is it possible to build an atomic bomb and how big would it be and how much uranium would you need, stuff like that. But there were a few scientists who really saw that not only could we build these weapons with them, but that these were going to be extremely powerful weapons and that the trends were, the indications were that Germany had a big advantage in that they had the best scientists in the world working there. They had the world's best industry working there. Uh, They had, as you said, a big head start. They founded their uh, version of the Manhattan Project, what they called the Uranium Club, they founded the Uranium Club two full years before we founded our Manhattan project. So they had a big start, a head start on us. And these scientists, again, do deserve a lot of credit for not only seeing where things were going, but alerting people. And eventually, they kind of got Albert Einstein on board. And he wrote, I didn't discuss in the book, but he wrote this famous letter to Franklin Roosevelt saying that you know certain developments in atomic research uh, make bombs possible, and we need to get on this.
0: And and what was kind of amusing but also striking was how all of these scientists from all these countries, right, they're running into each other at conferences, they're challenging one another, they're listening to each other, they're kind of uh, leaking about their successes to one another, even though they're supposed to keep it a secret and trying to prove each other wrong and one-upping each other. It was almost like sort of the golden age of radioactivity, you know, dark though that seems now. And there are like an epic number of Nobel laureates. They're all winning Nobel prizes (laughs) at this point in time. And, And then suddenly the whole thing turns into kind of spy versus spy, right? And initially they were racing to win awards and make scientific breakthroughs. And then it morphs into something a lot darker and more dangerous
1: it does yeah there is a moment in uh in the book especially when they figured out uh uranium fission uh where things went from wow this radioactivity stuff is so cool and interesting everyone's winning prizes for this to a big gulp where they said oh no like this could be very bad And we know that the war is coming very quickly. So it was a coincidence that uranium fission was discovered just a few months before the war, but it was a very dark coincidence and there were a lot of people quite scared. So yeah, there was kind of this turning moment right before the war, uh, yeah, right before the war when not only was the war coming, but they had this suddenly uh, potential to build these incredibly powerful and incredibly destructive bombs. So yeah, there was that dark moment there.
0: And in terms of the antagonists, um, you you focused on a couple of people, Heisenberg being one of them. Talk about sort of the key antagonists you thought were important to the story and and how, uh, you know, Uh, The Bastard Brigade was trying to stop them in their tracks.
1: So from the uh, Allies' point of view, Heisenberg was the one they were kind of obsessed with the whole time for various reasons. The most important reason was that he was the most brilliant scientist. He was the top German scientist. And there was a moment uh, during the war where he actually went to Heisenberg, he actually went and visited Niels Bohr in Copenhagen. Uh, Niels Bohr, another very famous scientist uh, who was on the Allied side uh, because he was Danish. And the two of them had this conversation and no one's ever quite figured out what happened during the conversation. There was actually a play about it, uh, Copenhagen, a uh, famous play about that conversation that they had. And no one's ever quite figured out what exactly was said there. But we do know that Bohr walked away from the conversation believing that Heisenberg was actively working on a bomb. And when he told the Allies that, that really scared them and really sort of cemented their fears. So I focus on Heisenberg in the book because he, again, was the one that the Allies were essentially, essentially obsessed with. And they were always thinking, you know, what's Heisenberg up to? What is he doing? So the fact that they were so focused on him and kind of obsessed with uh, tracking him down Made him kind of the natural antagonist in the book, yeah.
0: And and you say that uh, the Allies were willing, and the Bastard Brigade was willing to play dirty if needed, whatever it took, right, to meet their ends. And and some of that involved plots to kidnap Heisenberg or worse,
1: right? Oh yeah, definitely. They they had several plots to kidnap Heisenberg, um, and there was kind of no real morality. It never kind of entered into play. You know, like, can we do this? Should we do this? And this happens over and over because everything they were focused on was, what if Adolf Hitler gets an atomic bomb? What if Hitler gets the bomb? And compared to that, pretty much any other thing they were considering, uh, the, the morality just, there it, it was so much less than the the fear of Hitler getting the bomb that they were willing to consider almost anything. So yeah, kidnapping plots, assassination plots, pretty much whatever it took Uh, to stop Hitler, they were willing to consider. And they ended up doing these sort of uh, nutty, crazy missions that in a lot of cases don't seem like they had any chance of working, but they figured we have to do something.
0: What did you find to be the craziest uh, plot of all?
1: I think there's a couple. The idea that you were going to send in a very famous major league baseball player to try to assassinate a Nobel Prize winner that in a neutral country too. So uh, I mean, the, Moberg was, was, I mean, that would be like sending, you know, like LeBron James in or something to like kill someone, a scientist in another country. Like, it's just an incredibly batty idea, but they decided they were going to do this. Uh, the mission that uh, Joseph Kennedy died on also was a little nutty in that essentially what they were going to do is take these gigantic planes, strip out everything inside them, and then fill these planes back up with napalm. And there were these bunkers in Northern France that they thought were going to house atomic tipped missiles. And they thought that these planes filled with napalm were going to be the best way to take out these very big, very well-reinforced, well-protected bunkers. And they were going to fly these napalm filled planes over across the English Channel uh, with remote control. So they were essentially drone airplanes. And they had the technology to get the planes over there. What they didn't have was the technology to take off with the plane, so to get the planes off the ground. So essentially, they needed a pilot to volunteer to get in this plane uh, plane filled to the brim with napalm and take off with it. And then eject out, hopefully, before it exploded. But that was the idea, was to get to have this pilot take off with the plane. And again, Joseph Kennedy was so... Uh, desperate to top his kid brother, that he volunteered to be one of these pilots who was going to go up in this plane. And again, this this mission really had almost zero chance of working, but they were so focused on Hitler getting the bomb, they decided to go with it.
0: Some of my most favorite chapters and the most tension-filled chapters in the book, I think, are devoted to the Nazi quest for so-called heavy water, which the Allies nicknamed Juice, uh, you know, a key element which the Nazis needed to build the atomic bomb and how it kind of consumed them and the extent to which the British, French and Norwegians and others went to sabotage those efforts.
1: Yeah, so heavy water was a key ingredient in building atomic reactors and doing sort of the preliminary tests and the preliminary work you would need to do in order to build an atomic bomb later. And so especially at the start of the war, Germany was very focused on getting its hands on heavy water. And unfortunately for them, the only place in the world that was producing heavy water was this remote Uh, hydroelectric plant, essentially, in Norway, about uh, 7,500 miles west of Oslo, in the middle of nowhere. I mean, a really desolate part of the world. And so the Nazis ended up taking over this plant, and the British had to decide whether they were going to go after this ingredient, because it was a key ingredient in the research. So if they could stop the the Nazis from having this ingredient, they could really uh, slow their research down. But they were thinking – they had other considerations in that they thought, okay, if we go after the this key ingredient in the Nazi atomic weapons research, then the Nazis are going to know that we know what it's for. They're going to know that we are also aware of the prospect of atomic bombs. So there was kind of this game theory consideration where they're like, should we go after it? Should we not go after it? Will we tip our hand? And eventually, they did decide to go after that. They went on a couple of missions. One of them, the first one, was a complete disaster. Every single person involved either died or got captured and then was executed by the Nazis, illegally executed by the Nazis. And then the second mission, despite the disaster, they sent in nine more people to do this. And it was really one of the bravest, most incredible missions of the war. So it was a really... Um, Yeah, it was really fun to kind of write about that and the the bravery that they showed in going after this kind of obscure ingredient that had nothing to do with anything except scientific research.
0: And even before they had to confront, you know... Nazi guns and things like that. They had to deal with the weather because the weather there seemed so absolutely terrible that they just couldn't make it. They couldn't land, and then when they landed, they couldn't find their teams. And when they found the team, they couldn't make it to the destination. It just seemed horrendous. Yeah,
1: it was just blizzard after blizzard. I mean, there, there's chapters in the book that are nothing but them, you know, sitting through another blizzard uh, because it was just it was just such awful, awful weather there. But they those were the conditions that they had to deal with. And again yeah they were they were incredibly brave and they deserve a lot of credit for going after and disrupting that part of the the atomic research.
0: You know one of the things that was really interesting was you know understanding that all of this was happening in the earliest days of military and civilian and scientific intelligence gathering at the time there was very little of that going on in an organized, formal, and sophisticated way. I mean, there was no CIA in those early years, and even the Office of Strategic Services had not yet been established uh, in the very early years. And so a lot of the decisions that were being made on the part of U.S. and allied governments was kind of fueled by not just information from scientists, but rumors and gossip and innuendo and sparse intelligence And that, in in many ways, it seems, is what led to kind of the the evolution of the Manhattan Project and and then the Bastard Brigade and ultimately... The OSS, right? Yeah,
1: you do see a lot of cases where there were just these rumors floating around, and they uh, sometimes are like, well, that's probably not very credible. But other times they said, you know, we don't know if it's credible, but we have to act on this. And other times they were convinced that these rumors were true. So they were acting on, uh, you know, sketchy information a lot of the time, getting contradictory reports and things. And as you mentioned, they did have pretty poor, uh, especially military intelligence at the start of the war. Uh, Great Britain, Russia, France, Germany, they had fairly well-developed military intelligence, but the US really didn't have anything like that. Uh, There was one moment I always laugh about when I mentioned Moberg and the uh, film footage that he took of Tokyo before the war. Uh, when he gave it to the military, they got back to him very enthusiastically. And they said, wow, you know, this is so much better than flipping through travel magazines, which is what they had been doing before to gather intelligence. So and that was the state of intelligence before that. So they had a lot of catching up to do in order to actually provide useful intelligence. And they were, again, kind of scrambling and acting on rumors even then throughout much of the war.
0: So, what happened to all of the members of the Bastard Brigade? Uh, we know we know Joe Kennedy died. What what happened to some of the others? How did their stories end?
1: Well, a few of them ended up kind of trying to go back to their regular lives. Uh, Moberg, the baseball player, uh, never kind of got on track after that. I think it's fairly common with athletes and soldiers that at the time they were either playing ball or were in the military were the best times of their lives, and they always kind of struggled with what to do with themselves after that. And Mo Berg was kind of doubly afflicted there in that afterward, you know, he had offers to coach in Major League Baseball and stuff, but he just never quite got back on track and ended up kind of being sort of a a sad figure in that he would just travel around to baseball games, telling the same old stories over and over, again, kind of a loner, and eventually kind of cut off a bunch of his friends and ended his life fairly alone. So kind of a sad ending for Mo. Berg. And as far as the actual Bastard Brigade, some of those characters, uh, they ended up going back into civilian life. Uh, some of them ended up joining the CIA and getting involved in you know dirty business during the Cold War. Another one of them, the famous scientist named Samuel Goudsmit, he ended up kind of, again, trying to get his life back on track, uh, ended up doing some other scientific research, things like that. Um, Irene Joliot Curie, uh, she, unfortunately, and her husband got wrapped up in communist politics and ended up being kind of pariahs in France. There were cases where, you know, they wouldn't let them sleep in hotel rooms abroad because they had such a reputation for being uh, Marxist essentially. So they ended up being kind of excluded from their world. So things didn't turn out well, unfortunately, for a lot of these people. But uh, that really, the time that they had, during the war they kind of looked back on that as like the the high point like the most important thing they ever did
0: what was your biggest takeaway on leadership and adversity after reading this book and how it changed you as a person and as a writer
1: i would say um one thing i really took away from this and it wasn't really a focus of the book but it's something i never really thought about before that the Manhattan Project to build the bomb, uh, you know, as a science person and as someone interested in history, I'd always heard about Los Alamos, which is, you know, Robert Oppenheimer was there and Richard Feynman was there, Niels Bohr went there, all these famous scientists were there. And there's kind of a romanticism around that time with all these great scientists. But really, the key person for getting the atomic bomb built was Leslie Groves, was the general in charge of the overall project. He had the vision to be able to pick out Robert Oppenheimer as the head of the weapons lab at Los Alamos. Very few people thought that Robert Oppenheimer was going to work out. In fact, there were many people opposed to picking him. He ended up being a brilliant choice, but it was only Leslie Groves who was a good enough judge of character to figure out that Oppenheimer had this in him. So Groves is a very uh, good judge of character and also the organizational skills it took to get the atomic bomb built. Because again, the Los Alamos, kind of the the weapons lab is the more romantic part of it. But really, most of the people working in uh, or on the Manhattan Project were involved in Enriching uranium. That was the part that took the most work, the most effort, and was the most difficult part. So I didn't realize what an incredible job he did. And I think he doesn't get deserved he doesn't get as much credit as he deserves for having the leadership to see this through. And the incredible risks that he took, frankly, in doing this. Uh, they spent something like $2 billion in 1945 money to build this atomic bomb. And there were people joking with him that, you know, if we don't get this bomb built and it doesn't work, you should buy a house in Washington because you're going to get hauled before congressional uh, committees year after year after year to answer for all this money that you're wasting. So it was a real risk that he took, but his leadership was really why we succeeded in building an atomic bomb on such an incredibly short timescale.
0: And in fact, the ALSOs unit was named after Groves, I guess, because Grove in, in Greek is ALSOs.
1: Yes, it was sort of a multilingual pun. uh, Also, yeah, being the Greek word for Grove. Grove was actually uh, not a very pleasant person. I just spent a lot of time praising him, and he does deserve credit, but not a very pleasant person, uh, very humorless, in fact. And he was furious when he found out that they had named the mission uh, sort of after him in this pun, even though it was in a different language. And probably no one at that point really knew or took much Greek anymore. But he was furious when he found out because he considered, it a security breach, very obsessed with security. Uh, one of my favorite pictures, it's, it didn't get in the book, but uh, at Los Alamos, they had Santa Claus come in one day to like talk to the kids and, you know, give them presents and stuff. And there is a picture, a famous picture of Santa Claus being like padded down and essentially strip search because they wouldn't even allow Santa Claus in without uh, giving him the whole security runaround. So Groves had his great moments, but he could be a bit of a pill as well.
0: And even though he was uh, paranoid about security, there were many who said that he brought in Oppenheimer who was considered for a period of time to be considered a security risk and was even tailed constantly by the FBI because of his communist uh, students and communist sympathies.
1: Yeah, he he ran around – Oppenheimer ran, ran around with a lot of uh... – essentially fellow travelers. They were kind of a secret or not so secret communists, a lot of friends in that movement, things like that. So yeah, he was a a very controversial choice, not only among scientists, uh, they didn't think he had the chops to lead it, but also among security people because of this past that he had. Yeah.
0: It's been a great conversation. Do you have any closing thoughts?
1: Well, I really hope people enjoy the book. I hope they read it. Uh, One of the things I really like to do with my books, and I think the big reason I write them is that I do want to show that science is a human endeavor above all. I mean, we know about like the things that we get from science, the technology, kind of the, the way it opens up our mind about the universe. But there's a lot of great human stories in there as well. There's passions, there's obsessions, there's heroes and villains. And this book, especially, uh, the scientists really do become deep, interesting uh, uh, characters that you want to spend time with. So I, if I wanted people to get anything in general out of my books, it's that, that there's really a human element to science as well.
0: That's absolutely wonderful. I really enjoyed the book and I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. It reads like a thriller, but it's true story.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Sam, for joining me. Sam Keen is a New York Times bestselling author. His latest book is called The Bastard Brigade, the true story of the renegade scientists and spies who sabotaged the Nazi atomic bomb. You should also check out Keen's other books, The Disappearing Spoon, The Violinist's Thumb, The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, and Caesar's Last Breath.